Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with John Gennari, the author of Flavor and Soul, Italian America and its African-American Edge. Hi, John. Thanks for being here. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So I'm hoping you can start out by just sharing a little bit about how you got interested in the topic that you wrote about, how you sort of got interested in writing this book. So this book really comes out of um, an interest I developed in, I think, the late 80s, early 90s. I was still in graduate school um, doing a PhD in American studies, or as we call it at, at the University of Pennsylvania at the time, American civilization. And most of my um, you know, kind of specialized work was focused on African-American history and culture um, leading to a, a dissertation on jazz, jazz criticism in particular. Um, but I was sort of training myself to be a kind of cultural historian of the African-American arts in relationship to social and political uh, history. And um, I, ca- I came from an Italian-American background, uh, grew up in um, a small town in Western Massachusetts, Lenox, Massachusetts, and um, through my mother's family in New Jersey, Bergen County, New Jersey, just over the Hudson River from New York City, um, it was it was visiting my Italian relatives in in that part of New Jersey and getting a bit familiar with New York City, and then later living in New York after I graduated college and before I uh, started graduate school and and living in living in neighborhoods that were um, multiracial but um, interestingly both Italian and black or they were you know kind of borderland territories where Italian Americans and African Americans had um, you know lived cheek by jowl for generations and as much as anything I probably um, can date the interest in writing about this to the to the two Spike Lee movies, um, uh, "Do the Right Thing" uh, from 1989 and "Jungle Fever" from 1991, both of which I talk about in a chapter in the book about um, Spike Lee's, you know, sort of Italian American period, if you will. But I think there was a um, a moment in the early to mid 90s when. Uh, American popular culture had a lot of um, black Italian crossover. um, This was a time when uh, hip hop and rap music was moving into what became known as gangster rap. Um, And if you look at the way Snoop Dogg and other, you know, black rappers were positioning themselves, um, you know, image wise and the kind of cultural backdrop that they were shaping for themselves. A lot of it had to do with Italian American culture, 
mob culture, gangsters, uh, but more generally this, um, um, it, it, as I later, I think, tried to conceptualize it, a kind of um, uh, relationship to Italian-American masculinity and Italian-American ethnic outsider masculinity in, in particular. And Sinatra, uh, you know, against all, uh, you know, sort of sense aesthetically, at least to my ear, because um, his music is so different from hip hop and rap. He was taken up in this period by, um, by people, black, uh, fi- major black figures in the hip hop world as a kind of OG, an original gangster. And there was a, um, uh, a, 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 a really exceptional piece of writing in Vibe magazine in 1995 by a writer named Bones Malone, um, who I had been reading in Vibe uh, and, and had really been very interested in the kind of vernacular hip-hop Brooklyn kind of voice that he was developing for talking about music and, uh, and Black culture. And he wrote a, a piece about Sinatra uh, that was a to, to Sinatra as, uh, as, as a figure who meant a lot to, to Black men like himself. Um, as kind of a ethnic outsider who becomes eventually a, a, the, the ultimate kind of insider and a kind of you know chairman of the board figure who um, uh, you know ends up owning a record company at a racetrack, you know all the stuff that we associate with Sinatra in his prime, and so that combination of um, you know, a kind of suspect, even criminal, criminalized masculinity combined with a, a narrative of um, um, assimilation, at least into um, wealth and uh, a certain kind of power and certainly a certain kind of celebrity really, um, you know, resonated among, uh, a, you know, a certain cadre of people in the hip hop world. And um, and then things just start popping up all over the place. There was this... Um, television show, um, NBC, uh, police drama called homicide life on the street set in Baltimore, um, that ran in the nineties, maybe into the, to the early aughts. And, um, and it had, um, it had characters who were black and Italian. Uh, and it was also very much, uh, centered on, black and Italian kind of neighborhood culture in, in Baltimore at the time. And what, you know, once you start noticing these things, then you start seeing them all over the place. And then you start thinking back historically. And, you know, so what was Sinatra's relationship with the black musicians of his own time and his own ilk? And it turns out he had a very um, tight relationship with, uh, People in the jazz world, people in the sports world, um, people in the civil rights uh, world, and and so Sinatra really had a kind of insider status among uh, black elites, you know, sort of a, a, across um, the sports and entertainment and 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 uh, uh, political realms, and uh, and Sinatra becomes the book for that reason. Um, Food is is really central to the book, and I began to really think about the ways that Italian uh, food we- food stuff and food ways, and the importance of uh, food spaces um, figure in both cultures uh, very powerfully. 
Um, and then uh, sports. And um, I have a chapter in the book on college basketball. And it just struck me all of a sudden um, in that period I'm talking about that so many of the most prominent college um, uh, kind of celebrity coaches of the time were, were Italian-American. Uh, this is a time when Italian-American players of any note were kind of few and far between. You saw it more in the in the women's game than the men's game. Um, and so I get interested in the way that, uh, you know, people like John Calipari and Rick Pitino and Raleigh Massimino and others, particularly in um, the Big East, which was a um, fairly new basketball conference at the time and, um, and a really powerful one in shaping the kind of cultural imagination of basketball in that period. And it had a very Northeastern urban sensibility to it. And so I began to think of that as a kind of black Italian cultural space, uh, as well. Um, but it took me, it took me a long time to, to shape all this into, into a book. I was doing lots of other work in the meantime. And by the time I got time to come back around to it and, and put it into the form that it appears in this, in this book, um, a whole field that developed around me that was interested in, uh, you know, not, not just these kinds of inter-ethnic um, uh, contact zones, but also the whole question of the, the racial identity, the raciality, if you will, of Italian, Italians and, and Italian-Americans and how race works within Italian culture itself. Right. And so you talk about, you said that you, you know, you've divided this into sort of different chapters that get at different things. And you start with Frank Sinatra and you talked a little bit in that introduction about how you looked at Frank Sinatra with um, his relationship with African-Americans. And you also talk about it with his relationship with Italian-Americans and and what he represented. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about Frank Sinatra and why he is so important to both to Italian Americans as well and to that sort of crossover or that um, interdisciplinarity that you're or that inner ethnicity that you're talking about. So, I mean, it, I mean, Frank Sinatra in many ways is the dominant kind of symbol of Italian America, Italian American culture, Italian American um, success. Um, um, I mean, there's a kind of a ro- romanticization or a kind of mythification of his childhood to make it look like a, you know, kind of up from the streets, um, bootstrappy kind of kind of story. And in fact, he, you know, he was he was, you know, kind of fairly well off, at least comparatively uh, speaking, compared to other um, um second generation Italian Americans. His parents were both immigrants um, in in a place like like Hoboken. Um, but that but the narrative of his ascent to the you know very top of the world of entertainment and then you know becoming somebody who's um, who's a kingmaker, you know, in relation to uh, the Kennedy pre- presidency and I mean he ju- he's just a kind of larger than life life figure and a source of great pride for Italian Americans because of that, but also because of the fact that he didn't, um, he didn't change his name, uh, as, as, um, you know, mediators and, um, managers wanted him to do as many, you know, kind of ethnic, um, 
figures from uh, Italian and Jewish backgrounds did in that period. Um, he maintained. Um, a, a, I mean, it's interesting if you when you hear him sing, um, he has a kind of elocution is very studied, and he worked on very uh, uh, assiduously to. Um, you know, to sound like somebody who had mastered and had always spoke the English language and translated into, you know, that kind of bel canto purity of tone. Um, but when you heard him offstage, you know, the kind of saloon Sinatra, it was um, a very heavily accented, you know, kind of vernacular Italian. Um, and the people he hung in that language, you know, was one with the milieu in which he kept himself. Um, so, you know, even as he was uh, traversing cultural and class barriers, he always maintained a um, a sense of connection to his roots, um, um, or at least it was thought to be that way. He, you know, he had no interest in going back to Hoboken and, um, you know, he became, he spent, you know, most of his life in California as a, um, you know, as a wealthy, um, you know, celebrity, but there was a... There was a, um, you know, the the kind of interpretive community, if you will, or the or the ethnic, the Italian American, um, um, you know, kind of popular discourse about Italia about about Sinatra. It, you know, it enabled a kind of um, ethnic pride, uh, in a sense that this was somebody who um, who represented all of us, and. Um, and so there was that. I, I go on in that chapter a bit about my own family history and relationship to, to Sinatra. Um, my mother growing up, my mother's family being just a couple towns over in northern New Jersey. My One of my uncles, um, uh, a construction worker building one of Dolly Sinatra's retirement homes. Um, I mean, my, my family was, uh, I mean, they're thousands, tens of thousands of families now who claim to have been close to, you know, to the Sinatras back in the day. And my family had that kind of, you know, uh, made that kind of claim, but we were, you know, we were no more, um, you know, kind of um, c- connected to them than, uh, the, you know, than, any, than anybody else. That sense of, um, I mean, here was somebody who was, I mean, at a time when, um you know, there was still the, a lot of discrimination against Italians. There, there was still a kind of criminalization of Italians. There was, um, there was nothing like the the prominence of Italian Americans in, um, in um, you know, education and the arts and business and politics as there later came to be. Um, you know, so Sinatra was sort of a stand-in for all of that, and that was true in my my family. Although he was a complicated, kind of vexed figure in my family, because at least with my parents, um, Sinatra's politics, his move from being um, a very stout, you know, kind of Roosevelt New Deal liberal, to later flirting with um, conservatism and becoming associated with uh, with Reagan and even even Nixon. Um, that, that rub, rub my, uh, uh, very liberal, politically very liberal parents the wrong way. And there was always talk about, you know, Sinatra was, um, um, 
he was a very messy man. He led a very messy life. He, you know, got divorced and he carried on with, uh, you know, with women and he got in fights and he, um, you know, he could be really a nasty person. And there was, um, I mean, there was always, you know, a kind of among the men, there tended to be a kind of rationalization and defense of that. The women, uh, were more critical of that at the same time that they also, you know, revered, uh, revered him as a, as a, as an artist. And I haven't said a word yet about really what a, you know, extraordinary performer he was. And, um, you know, just the, the, the way in which he shaped American popular music, um, as a singer, uh, who brought to, um, you know, mid 20th century, uh, the singing of that great canon of um, songs that were written, you know, from the 20s on, he brought a particular kind of, uh, you know, to, to, to singing that made the songs, his songs, you know, we think of these songs as Sinatra songs, even though every singer, um, every popular singer of the time sang those songs. I mean, he just seemed to have a unique ability to personalize um what he was singing and that kind of charisma um, was very affecting in um, in Italian American communities that I, I argue in the book have always had um, a real appreciation for, if not the formal arts, um, although there's that as well, then, um, you know, of style, you know, style, stylization, uh, la bella figura, the concept of the beautiful figure. Um, and performativity. I mean, we're people who, um, um, you know, we're always acting out scenes. We're almost always dr- dramatizing things. We're emotional. We, you know, wear our emotions on our sleeves, all of that. And the messiness of Sinatra's life and the nobility of his life together seem to, um, you know, resonate very strongly uh, with, within my family and other Italian American families. Yeah. And so also in this chapter, and you mentioned this earlier, but I'm not sure if there's anything you want to add to it. You do talk about how this sort of nostalgia and this romanticism of Sinatra becomes really important to gangster rap in the early 1990s. And and I'm not sure if there's anything else you want to add to that or um, expound on with that relationship and why you really see that relationship happening and occurring. Well, again, you know, I think it, I think it has to do with this, um, um, the sense of, you know, kind of, um, grandiose masculinity, you know, the, the big man, um, the, um, the, I mean, the, I mean, the way in which Sinatra made it all about himself, um, in good ways and bad. Um, but he was a, um, you know, a kind of padrone or a kind of patriarchal figure in, uh, you know, in a very patriarchal culture. And I think the rap and hip hop world has a kind of nostalgia for that and, and, uh, um, and, and reproduces some of the best and worst features of that. Um, so there's, you know, so there's, so there's that. Um, there's also, I argue in this, the, the, the chapter quite, you know, kind of paradoxically ends up being about mothers and femininity and um, how I think um, um, Sinatra's mother, Dolly Sinatra, 
plays a kind of outsized role in um, in the cultural memory of, of of Sinatra in a way that maps onto a larger um, phenomenon of the you know kind of romanticization of the Italian American mother as um, you know kind of everybody's mother. And and this to me is perfectly consonant with the history of the black mammy, and you know the the idea of the the the, the black woman as a um, you know kind of outsized figure, as well as on the other side the you know kind of social science discourse about the problems of matriarchy um, leading to dysfunction within the black families. The similar arguments were made about Italian, uh, Italian American families in the 1950s and early, in early sixties. So, so the mother is a kind of, you know, kind of, uh, vexed figure, but, uh, cultures, both black, black, black culture and Italian culture being about, um, if you're going to be a strong man, you need strong women (laughs) and you need a strong mother. And sometimes you're not as strong as your mother. Um, um, and, the the difference I think between Sinatra and at least the part of the gangster rap culture that I don't particularly care for, although there are parts of it that I do like very much, um, that you know, whereas Sinatra I think was was in his art able to uh, uh, achieve a really interesting balance of the masculine and the feminine, and you know, this kind of tough and tender uh, persona and this emotional vulnerability. I mean, something happened not just within rap culture, but I think with Amer- within American culture more broadly um, in recent years, something about masculinity that um, you know seeks to uh, uh, at all cost you know distance itself from any hint of, of emotional vulnerability. So, there, in other words, there are some affinities and continuities between Sinatra and the rappers, but I think some important differences as well. So you move from Sinatra and his relationship to Italian-Americans and also his influence on rap and hip-hop to food. And so in your second chapter, you talk a great deal about that relationship to Italian-Americans and also Black Americans with food. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that chapter and what you're discussing in that chapter. So what I'm trying to do in that chapter, the chapter is called Everybody Eats. And that's a, a shortening of a song title, uh, Cab Calloway's Everybody Eats When They Come to My House. And what I'm trying to do in that chapter is to suggest a kind of um, um, a, the, the, the template of a, of, a, of, a, of a kind of cultural pattern in, in America that's uh, it's been true of Blacks and Italians and Blacks and Italians in relation to each other. But I think also of other immigrant cultures and working class cultures, which is that um, it is it is food and and music as consumer cultures um, that um, that enable um, these groups to get a foothold in the American mainstream, and then in a way to sort of and I'm, I'm sort of continuing with the with the with the metaphor of of mothering that I developed in that first chapter with uh, Dolly Sinatra. But my suggestion is that we can think of food and music together as a kind of mothering um, force in, in American life. Um, 
I mean, it's it's more obvious with 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 food and the ways that we think of maternity body feeding, you know, the you know the mother as food, literally as food, and the ways in which our our cultural codes, you know, sort of elaborate that. Um, but but here, you know, here blacks and Italians, I've you know, hopefully by that point in the book, uh, made the case that. Um, you know, they're both groups that suffer, you know, incredible um, economic dislocation, uh, uh, oppression, etc. I mean, obviously, there's nothing to compare with the experience of chattel slavery that Africans undergo. But of the European immigrants uh, of the, you know, kind of late 19th, early 20th century, the southern Italian immigrant is, uh, you know, is... is you know, a kind of paragon of suffering. And it's mostly Southern Italians that, you know, become um, Italian, the, the force that shapes Italian America. And so you've got these, these two groups that are at the bottom um, and they become the two groups that really, you know, two of the groups that most uh, prominently become, um, you know, responsible for the, uh, the feeding in the largest sense, metaphorical sense, and the, you know, kind of comfort, if you will, and, and sense of abundance and pleasure uh, in American culture writ, writ large. So black music, I think, obviously plays that role, the way that black music is, um, I mean, where, what, where would American culture be without black music? We can't even contemplate it. Um, everybody turns to it, you know, as, as, as a source of, as a source of, you know, kind of pleasure and, um, expressivity, freedom, etc. Italian food um, at a certain point becomes, um, you know, we don't even call it ethnic food anymore. It's its own thing, Italian food. Uh, but things like pasta and pizza and, and such are so deeply ingrained in the American diet. And as a, you know, kind of symbol of abundance and warmth, um, you know, the Italian thing around the you know, the kitchen table, um, you know, kind of serves a kind of, um, you know, uh, important symbolic role in, in, in American culture. So I'm looking at the kind of cross currents of these things throughout that, that chapter and also the ways in which, um, within these, within these cultures, but in others as well, um, there are these kind of unrecognized intersections or, you know, not, uh, usually noted intersections between, between food and music, the, the tradition of, um, uh, fruit peddlers and fish peddlers and food peddlers, uh, generally in, um, in urban America, um, and the, you know, the, the, the cries that the vendors and peddlers, um, you know, sound out through the, through the neighborhood, um, you know, this this becomes part of the soundscape of American popular music, particularly in in blues and and, and early jazz, um, and the way that as those musics develop, I mean, they they tend to develop in food spaces, restaurants, supper clubs, etc. And I, you know, kind of enumerate all the song titles, uh, particularly in black music, that you know that bear out that you know kind of nexus between food and in music, there's a long section of the chapter where I'm dealing with some specific Italian American writing about about food, 
and um, in particular, a um, a book uh, by a writer named Louise de Salvo called Crazy in the Kitchen, where she um, she tries to kind of de-romanticize uh, Italians and food by talking about a family experience that's really a, a, a very um, tragic one. And she relates the bad food that her mother fed her to a larger um, story that she wants to tell about Italy itself kind of symbolically or literally starving its uh, its own uh, in the late 19th uh, century. And, the, you know, these, these people who literally can't feed themselves in Italy become Italian-Americans um, and develop this kind of glorious, you know, kind of food culture that we have here. And so that kind of narrative of um, agricultural lives as producers um, in slavery, in the case of African-Americans, in what Italians call um, la miseria, the misery in the, uh, the South, uh, how over a, you know, a couple of short generations, this gets transmuted into music and dance and cultural intimacies uh, that, uh, that become really, really, you know, I think a central part of American culture writ large. And so from this chapter, can you move into, so we move from um, music and food into Spike Lee. You have a whole chapter on Spike Lee and sort of Spike Lee's use of Italian Americans and how he sort of, um, how how he shows Italian Americans in his films and, and his relationship with that. And so can you talk a little bit about that choice of Spike Lee and, and, and what he was doing in, like you mentioned earlier, in Do the Right Thing and Jungle Fever and what you saw and how that also, I'm asking like five questions at once, but also how that related to, um, you talk a bit about how that related to the, what was going on at the time in New York, um, in those New York neighborhoods. So can you talk a bit about Spike Lee? So I started our conversation talking about just how um, resonant uh, and important those films were, Do the Right Thing and Jungle Fever for me in the late eighties and early nineties. And I think for a lot of Italian Americans, um, and this is the time when there's a lot of really, um, tragic violence in, uh, New York, in, uh, Brooklyn in particular, uh, between Italians and blacks, there's the, there's the murder of a teenager, um, who, who comes with a couple of friends into Bensonhurst to look at a used car, um, and gets uh, set upon by a, a group of uh, young Italian American men from the neighborhood, one of whom, you know, shoots him uh, to death. The ensuing demonstrations in Bensonhurst um, by led by Al Sharpton. Uh, this is one of the things that really puts Al Sharpton on the map and the counter demonstrations that, uh, you know, Bensonhurst Italian Americans are waging uh in defense of the neighborhood and um, um, in, 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 in a way that um, for many progressive Italian Americans uh, becomes something of an embarrassment because of the racist um, <clears throat> language and gesture and um, the whole kind of racist um, part of Italian American culture that gets, <clears throat> you know, kind of spotlighted in that, in that moment. So, so there's some something in the back backdrop that, um, and that's just one of several of these of these kind of high profile, you know, cases. 
I mean, right down to our own time, um, uh, there's just been a number of really unfortunate uh, cases of, of violence, um, of Italian Americans uh, visiting violence on African Americans, including the police. And um, one coming from the community, the progressive community that I come from, uh, can't help but notice that oftentimes those cases of police brutality and, um, um, you know, m- murderous violence against African-American men that happened in New York. Um, very often, in fact, almost without uh, exception, the police officers in, in question have been Italian-American. Um, and there was the Rudy Giuliani um, uh, mayoralty in which, um, you know, a really aggressive policing uh, ethos uh, t- took root. So while throughout this book, there's a lot of um, you know, really um, heartwarming uh, um, ways in which Blacks and Italians produce a culture together, there's also this other side. And Spike Lee seems to me to really, you know, kind of embody that um, in those in, and try to capture that in those in those films. They're highly imperfect films, I think, um, in, in a number of ways, but they, I try to make the case really capture something very powerful about, uh, those tensions that I just talked about, but also something larger about the trajectory of the historical trajectory of, um, Italian Americans and African Americans. Um, I mean, there's a sense that African Americans for all the problems that they're experiencing, all the, so, you know, kind of, um, urban blight and, you know, drug issues and such. I mean, there is the sense that there's a community that's, um, that's engaged, that's fighting, that's struggling, that, you know, is still, um, a community as such. Whereas with, um, Italian Americans, there's been so much, um, out migration from the city. There's been, um, you know, stuff that, that has, um, you know, kind of riven the Italian American community class-wise, but also there's, you know, there's not a clear sense what the future of Italian America is. I mean, who are the new Sinatras? Who are the new heroes, et cetera? Um, so, so there's that as, as well, but I, I, um, I got to talk to some of the actors who work with, with Spike Lee, um, and the complexities of, um, you know, kind of cross-racial relationships that develop on and off the set. Um, I also make the point that Spike Lee, I, I try to put uh, Spike into the context of, you know, recent film history and the extent to which he is, um, you know, as a filmmaker, very, very deeply influenced by uh, the new Hollywood and the particular, the Italian American figures in the new Hollywood. And in particular, Francis Ford Coppola and the Godfather films, um, and Scor- and you know the several Scorsese, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro um, collaborations, uh, in 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 particular, um, um, the boxing film uh, Raging Bull, and and Spike talks about this stuff you know quite openly in the diaries that he writes about the making of these of these films. And so there's a you know there's an interesting complexity here that really sums up a lot of the the black Italian experience, um, 
and, and, and Spike himself grew up in a mostly Italian American neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, uh, in Cobble Hill. And, you know, so he understands that culture. And one of his actors is, uh, I was going to say his black actors, Giancarlo Esposito, he's actually a black Italian, um, but he plays a black, he plays black characters in Spike's films, but he himself grew up in Italy. Um, he, he told me he thought in some ways um, Spike Lee had a better feeling for, for Italian American culture than he did African American culture. Um, because of that, that experience of, of growing up in that kind of, that kind of neighborhood. Um, and that's just interesting because Spike at that, this time is being, you know, kind of elevated to the position of, of you know, the, he's, he's a kind of, not just a filmmaker, but a celebrity and kind of spokesperson for black America, a symbol of black America. And, um, and a lot of Italian Americans don't like these films because they think that they overplay Italian uh, racism and aren't fair to the Italian characters. Uh, and I, 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 I think there's a lot of that in these films, but what strikes me about these films is the, um, is the feeling for black Italian, um, you know, both conflict and collusion, both, uh, enmity and amity. Um, it's all there in these, in these films and as messy as they are, I think there were, singular in the way that they were able to, uh, you know, to, to, to accomplish that. And they kind of fill a gap in the representation of um, Italian Americans, urban Italian Americans at a time when um, Scorsese and uh, uh, Coppola and other Italian filmmakers weren't necessarily staying with Italian American subjects and that, you know, had begun, begun to move uh, into other, into other subject areas. Um, and so for all these reasons, I think Spike, uh, Spike Lee in those films figure importantly in the shaping of Italian American, um, cultural discourse during this period. Right. I found it really interesting too, when you, and you mentioned it a bit, but, uh, that the different readings of the film, right. And that there were some more positive readings, some very negative readings, and even how the actors sort of had different readings and takes on the film. So I found that really an interesting way to sort of look at these and situate what Spike Lee was doing at that time. So you move from film to, and we've just had our March Madness and all the, all the fun. And, and I think that we were at, I went to Temple. So um, you talk a bit about uh, Penn and uh, the, the Big East Temple and John Cheney, my, my uh, man. But um, you, you moved to basketball and college basketball in particular and coaching. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that, the role of Italian Americans in the sort of in coaching and in basketball and, and what you were doing in that chapter. Right. So, you know, I, I mentioned some of the, you know, the coaches earlier, um, you know, they're still with us. Some of them famously, John Calipari at Kentucky now, after starting at UMass uh, in the eighties, uh, going to the NBA for a while. And then uh, Memphis before Kentucky, Rick Pitino, um, Rick Pitino, the only coach who's won um, the championship at two different schools. He wanted at Kentucky and then he wanted at Louisville. <laughs> Although that Louisville one has, I think been vacated uh, just now because of the, uh, 
all of the controversy that surrounds Patino and his firing from uh, from Louisville and the scandal that's engulfed that that program. Um, but the the older generation, um, uh, Lou Carnesecca at St. John's, Raleigh Massimino at at Villanova, um, um, and 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 you know somebody who you know in some ways is the is considered by you know kind of coaches coaches the great coach of this period and that's Jim Valvano and maybe the one of the great coaches of all time um and and another one of these kind of outsized kind of charismatic performative kind of figures he wins the national championship in 1983 at at North Carolina State in a in a uh, last with a, a last second you know putback shot um and um it, it it's it's one of these miracle runs where his team was not expected to go anywhere and they upset you know five six teams in a row and uh he becomes a kind of legendary figure because of that and um not so many years later he dies um uh, tragically prematurely of cancer um but become has become kind of a patron saint of the sports world and particularly of ESPN, um, which every year now runs this um, Jim Valvano, you know, kind of memorial, uh, a week of uh, fundraising for the, you know, kind of cancer research foundation that he, that he started. And they replay this very famous um, speech that he gave at, um, at the very first of these, when he uh, almost on his deathbed is announcing the, you know, the, 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 the beginning of this, uh, this cancer research uh, fundraising effort. And um, it just occupies this kind of huge um, ritual kind of space within the culture of, of ESPN. And he, and like many of these cult coaches, they're, you know, they're, their fortunes as coaches wax and wane, and sometimes they find themselves out of jobs, but very quickly they move into the broadcast booth or into other parts of the basketball infrastructure. Um, and um, the, I, I make the case that the college basketball um, for the last 30 years has been Dick Vital, uh, the ASBN broadcaster who comes out of New Jersey and coaches at Rutgers first and then Detroit and then in the NBA briefly, uh, never as much, you know, championship level success, but he turns some programs around, but he really finds himself as a, as a broadcaster in the late seventies, early eighties, when ESPN is just getting off the, off the ground. And he's become kind of a notorious figure because of his loud mouthed, you know, kind of over enthusiastic, uh, sportscasting style. Some people hate him, some people love him, but nobody does not recognize his voice who's in any way, you know, a fan of college basketball. And I relate that to a broader trend line in sports media where Italian American voice in sports talk radio and in broadcasting has been a, you know, kind of one of these things that's uh, sort of been hidden in plain sight. Um, and, um, and then there's uh, Sonny Vaccaro, who is the guy who the marketing uh, mind behind uh, Nike's very successful move into uh, college basketball with um, the swoosh 
uh, sign and the, um, you know, the, the Nike Jordans and a bunch of other sneaker designs that he, um, uh, that he's behind. And then he's a broker and a mediator who's, uh, the person, for instance, who puts, uh, Michael Jordan together with, uh, with Spike Lee to make these, uh, would turn out to be really transformative, groundbreaking, uh, television commercials in the, in the, in the mid eighties, uh, based on, uh, Spike Lee's character, Mars Blackman from, uh, late eighties, I should say, Mars Blackman from, uh, the film, she's got to have it. And this is the most transformative person in college basketball period for the way that he gets um, Nike and ESPN and all of these big corporate forces involved in the game and, you know, essentially creates a much bigger monetization and corporatization of the, of the sport for both good and bad, good in the sense of, you know, the amazing revenues that are generated bad, you know, for all the, amazing revenues that it generates and, uh, you know, has really changed the scale and the scope of the game. But there's, you know, at the root of this, I think is something about the way that these, um, these Italian American coaches interact with, uh, black players, particularly inner city players, oftentimes players from broken families. They, they fulfill these kind of surrogate father roles and the teams, you know, they, 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 they kind of, propagate this idea of the team as family. Um, and that fits right into, you know, kind of broader, you know, kind of cultural tropes about Italian familial warmth. And uh, I try to show how the, you know, the situation's always more complicated than that. And it's as much image as, as reality, but, um, but there's also a lot of truth to the, you know, kind of the, the success that uh, Italian American coaches have in, um, recruiting and mentoring and getting involved with the families of their, of their players. And, you know, even for all of the kind of, um, conflicted, uh, terrain that goes with, uh, this is all happening incidentally in the same period, uh, that, you know, we, we talked about, I talked about it a minute ago with, um, the killing of Yusef Hawkins and the counter demonstrations and demonstrations and racism, uh, being flung from Italian Americans toward African American demonstrators, even as all that's going down, there is still this within within the culture of basketball. I think this very important kind of alliance that develops, and it's an alliance that I situate against a kind of larger backdrop of coaching uh, styles, born and bred coaches, and a kind of older wasp, um, you know, kind of um, Protestant culturally Protestant kind of approach to culture coaching that shifts over into a very Catholic, if you will, style of, 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 of coaching. Um, and the Catholic schools, uh, parochial schools become important feeders literally into, uh, the big time basketball, uh, programs, um, not just the big East, but, but your school temple and, and others. Um, and, and it also, I think, has to do with what I, you know, talked about earlier. This this kind of shared um, Black Italian um, passion for for style and performance. Uh, Italian American coaches become known for dressing well, uh, as do a lot of Black coaches. At a time when the older, you know, kind of white coaches, uh, 
notoriously Bobby Knight of Indiana, he's he's dressing down. <laughs> he doesn't even wear a suit suit jacket and tie anymore. More he wears a you know kind of gym, uh, you know kind of pullover sweater. And so the uh, the Italians and the blacks are kind of raising the the level of um, self presentation, if you will, uh, in terms of sartorial choice. Uh, and I get into some things about language and, uh, music, uh, and, you know, kind of the rituals of pregame and, and, you know, kind of postgame performance and the way in which, um, we can see acted out on basketball courts, some of the same kinds of cross-racial intimacies that, uh, uh, that earlier in the book I had ascribed to, you know, Sinatra in his relationship to the Count Basie band and, um, and other, uh, of his, uh, of his, uh, confreres in the, in the jazz world. Right. And so you sort of take all of this, right. You take these sort of topics that you've gone over in your final chapter, you sort of bring this all together and really look at, um, some ways there is this intersectionality, right. You, and you talk about, um, the Sopranos, but other um, ways in which some artists sort of show this relationship between Italian culture and African culture. And so I don't know if there's anything you want to um, talk about with that sort of final chapter in the book and what you're sort of bringing all together. Well, sure. So the, the, uh, the chapter is called Tutti, the Italian word for everything. <laughs> and uh, it sort of has two meanings. One is everything, you know, that I was trying to sneak into the book that I hadn't gotten in yet. (laughs) Uh, But tutti also, it comes up at the very end as a, um, as a word that's used to describe the kind of aesthetic and the ethos of a man named Ficre Gabriesus, who uh, the book ends in something of an elegy for this, for this person I got to know um, as a friend. Um, Ficre is an Eritrean uh, he was an Eritrean uh, immigrant to this country um, in the late 70s um, with three of his brothers after uh, they fought together in the civil war between Eritrea and Ethiopia, and they lost uh, another brother in that war. And they became restaurateurs in New Haven and in, in New York. Uh, and later, Fikile married um, a prominent African-American poet and scholar, Elizabeth Alexander. Um, and um, um, they became, you know, together really important within the African-American cultural and intellectual community. And Fikle died uh, of a heart failure, um, of heart failure, some sort of, you know, kind of valve issue, um, just a couple of weeks after his <clears throat> after his fiftieth birthday, this now is five or six years ago, uh, and hence I call it an elegy. Uh, but I focus on Fikre because he brings that um, he internationalizes my story, if you will. And the other thing I'm trying to do in this last chapter is to suggest that this Black Italian thing is um, it's not just a you know it's not just the story I've told in this book about something about U.S. popular culture that they're larger. There's a larger map here. There's a larger history. And part of it has to do with the Italian colonial presence in East Africa, Ethiopia and Eritrea. And um, Ficre grows up in 
um, in an Italian culture, uh, an Italian colonial culture. His teachers are Italian nuns. He learns the language fluently. He learns the history and, and culture. I mean, he's the most Italian person I ever met. Uh, uh, and yet he's this, this African, you know, so in some ways he personifies the kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, border crossing that I, that I'm, that I'm trying to get at in this, in this book. Um, and so I talk about his, his cooking and his, he's also a painter uh, and his artwork and his family life as a kind of bringing together of uh, African culture and Mediterranean culture and um, his, uh, his, his wife now, now, now widow Elizabeth Alexander grows up in a prominent um, Washington DC uh, African-American family that has its own connection to Frank Sinatra <laughs> as it, as it, as it turns out. So I'm trying to pull these, you know, kind of, kind of threads to together in that last chapter, including a little riff on the Sopranos, as you mentioned. And essentially what I say is that I thought the Sopranos really missed an opportunity to, to capitalize more on, um, this black Italian theme. I mean, it's my theme. It's not, it wasn't the theme of the show, but but it was it was a latent theme in in the series, and 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 actually uh, I hear now that um, David Chase, uh, you know, the creator of The Sopranos, is doing a film that's going to focus on um, kind of the late '60s in Newark. Um, it's going to be a kind of prequel to The Sopranos. So it's Tony Soprano um, as a teenager and his gangster in, um, you know, kind of racially torn, uh, Newark, New Jersey. And that's exactly what, uh, I'm not taking credit for this, but that's exactly the kind of thing that I was proposing in, in my few pages on the Sopranos that it hints at that interestingly, uh, really interestingly in the, in the series, how the, um, you know, the, the very fractious relationship between blacks and Italians in Newark, uh, you know, kind of apotheosizing in 1967 with the um, uprisings uh, in in Newark um, uh, is is very very much the you know the kind of um, um, it 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 is the backdrop of you know kind of race ethno racial politics that informs what we're seeing played out in the Sopranos uh, in the you know in its contemporaneous account of the 1990s. And, and I think um, so much attention is paid to gender issues and Tony's relationship with his mother. And of course, with what I said about Italian mothers, I'm interested in that. But I think not enough attention has been paid to the, you know, to the, you know, to the race issues. And Chase himself, I thought, could have done more with it. So we'll see what he does with this, uh, with this, with this, with this new movie. But then in that chapter, I also try to do a... Um, um, a, a, a kind of survey of kind of social science thinking about um, about race and ethnicity and how um, you know we we think about race differently than ethnicity, but um, Italians become a really interesting test case because the way that they're talked about in social science. Um, discourse in the fifties uh, and sixties, they, you know, the, the diagnoses of problems in the Italian American community are really very similar to what we end up hearing about the African uh, American community. 
Um, and this goes back to the time when Italians, you know, they were in the, you know, up, up from the, during that immigration period, their racial status was really quite ambiguous um, in this, in this country. Um, a, a historian who's looked at this in the case of Chicago has titled his book, White on Arrival, uh, Thomas Guglielmo. And, you know, so he's making the case that the Italians were white in the sense of falling on that side of the race line in Chicago during that period. Other historians have looked at other places and seen Italians who were uh, particularly in the South, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, how they were um, uh, Jim Crowed in the same way that African-Americans were. They were put into segregated schools with blacks. They were lynched, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this long and complicated history that I think is still being, uh, we're still trying to understand. So we've talked a while. Um, and so I don't know if you want to end, if there's anything you're working on that's a new project that you want to talk about, or if you're just sort of promoting your book or where you're going. Funny you should ask. So, um, you know, I've been flogging the book the last year um, and enjoying, um, you know, presenting sections of it uh, to some college classes and, uh, you know, some some bookstore readings and that sort of thing. I've reached the point where I really need, <laughs> I need a new project uh, to, to feel like I have a purpose in life uh, and a stable identity because I'm not exactly sure where I want to go now. I can tell you though that I'm working, I'm, I'm editing a, I'm a guest editing a, a special issue of a journal called Italian American Review. Um, and it's going to be about sound and sonic, uh, we're, we're calling, well, the, the conference that it came out of was called Italian Sonorities and, um, and Italian, Italian American Sonorities and Acoustic Landscapes. And, um, and I wrote a, I, I gave the keynote lecture to that and elaborated on some of the things in the book about, uh, in, um, in Italian American life, not just music, but kind of everyday sound. And the sort of micropolitics of sound, of loudness and silence and such uh, in Italian-American family life. And, um, and I've got essays coming forthcoming in this volume uh, that have to do with, um, I mentioned earlier, the, um, the tradition of um, food peddling. Um, we, we're getting a, uh, an essay that's uh, not so much about peddling as about the fishermen's, what's called the fisherman's feast in Boston's North End. Um, it grew out of the tradition of fish, fishermen, um, you know, being loud, <laughs> and and their language really being uh, a kind of singular sound within the North End community. And the feast, the religious feast, every year. Uh, even today is called the Fisherman's Feast. And there's an Italian scholar who's doing a kind of sonic um, analysis of that, of that feast. Um, we have some pieces on early American, uh, Italian American sound recording, uh, not just music, but, you know, humor and um, in the, you know, the earliest, um, you know, kind of um, uh, recordings in the 20th century Um are of, of, of Italian-American uh, performance. Um, 
I talk a lot about the importance of Caruso in my piece. So we have some other people talking about um, not just opera, but the, the, the concept of the operatic, um, you know, as it, as it kind of crosses boundaries and other, other interesting material. Um, I had been saying that I wanted to write a, a next book about sound, but I'm not sure I'm going to, you know, go that deeply into it. I might, you know, have to leave it with this, uh, with this, um, special issue of the volume. And I would like to, I'd like to find, I'd like to do a biography. Um, but I can't find the person I want to do it of. Uh, but somebody who's in this, you know, kind of cultural space that I've been, um, uh, that I've been, but I've been exploring, um, this book, this book, um, unlike my first book about jazz is not a deep, you know, kind of archival book. Um, it's, you know, more about representation and, um, you know, my reading of different cultural representations and sifting of the, of the secondary scholarship. Uh, there's also a lot of, you know, kind of personal, almost autoethnography in the book, but I, I kind of hunger to get back into the archives and have one of those kind of projects where I'm doing a lot of research and looking at documents and piecing things together that way. And if I could come up with a biographical subject for whom, you know, I could find letters and, um, and that sort of thing and photographs and such that that'd be the direction I would want to go in. Well, it's been really fabulous talking to you about your book. Again, this is John Gennari, Flavor and Soul, Italian America and its African-American Edge. John, thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much. It was great fun, Rebecca. 